So, um, tonight I'd like to explore with you all how meditation practice illuminates the workings of our mind and the possibilities for our actions. And as points of focus, I'd like to offer uh, these two concepts, awareness and questioning, and to see what those might bring forth from us together. And I will share with you first what they bring forth for me. So we could call ourselves, uh, we could characterize ourselves as unique synthesizers. So human beings from the complex conditions of our lives make meaning of the world. Um, And we do this from our singular and unrepeatable experiences through our senses. And our senses in Buddhist understanding, philosophy, include our minds. So we have all these ways of perceiving the world, all these senses. And this all happens mostly at a level we're not aware of, which is very handy for many processes in our life, such as the autonomic nervous system. We wouldn't want to have to be necessarily aware of every um, chemical reaction that went on in our bodies since there are many, many, many of them. And theoretically our minds could take in all those, but it's not the way we're constructed. When we get to the higher level functions, of our lives as humans, the ones that call for choices and action, that is, when we get into the sphere of consciousness, we can see that unawareness often leads to mistakes and delusions and or fixations or obsessions. And the Buddha described uh, the major three of these, a major three of these, which are called in the Buddhist tradition the marks of being, the marks of being human, or the three characteristics. So, and the first is the unsatisfactoriness of being out of control. So fundamentally, in the central facts of being born and dying, and also in actually everything that happens in between, we are not in control. I mean, I'm talking about fundamentally. And so we recognize this as human beings at a very deep level, and that gives rise to a kind of existential uneasiness, a kind of a chafing, an angst, or an anguish. And this in Pali is called dukkha. So in the language of Buddhist texts, um, which is Pali, a language like Latin no longer spoken, but very much alive in the Buddhist tradition. Dukkha is often translated in English as suffering. But the kind of suffering it's referring to is not the, what we could call the suffering of, of being human too, that we are born and then we die and we go through vicissitudes of illness and changes of circumstance and misfortunes, etc., accidents even. But, uh, but the suffering of our 
the unsatisfactoriness, the suffering of that we know that um, that we really can't control these things, even though we try to. We try to by either holding on to the things which we feel are helpful and that we like, or pushing away the things that we don't like. So that's what the word dukkha refers to, that kind of unsatisfactoriness. The second mark that the Buddha talked about um, is the fact that regardless of appearances, we don't exist separate from any other phenomena in the world. And either, neither does anything else exist separate from anything else as modern physics shows us so we live in a, in, an, in, a, in a completely relative world and these are disturbing to us these facts are facts and we also find them disturbing and that's just the way things are being human as a as a part of this the, the, this not existing without being in relation to everything else uh, the Buddha kind of broke that down a little more he was uh, a very empirical kind of person that is that he um, that he relied on direct experience um, and this is what he's what all of his teachings were about he said, this is my experience and I invite you to test for yourself whether you have this experience or similar experiences. So he said from his experience that also we have our appearance in the material form is one thing, but also we have no way to know um, that we exist in a non-material form that is of say cosmic consciousness or an atman or another kind of you know higher self so he said even though some people may postulate that we have no way of knowing that and it's not verifiable so um, we just leave that aside so in this characteristic is called anatta in Pali and it's usually translated as not self so um, so in talk after talk, the Buddha asks, can this be called a self? Can my body be called a self? No, because that is composed of all these little parts. It's a composite. Everything is a composite in that we know in the, in the world of material life, our own life, the life of this carpet, the life of trees, the life of stones. Um, everything is a composite. It's all in relation to other things. And the Buddha kept making this point in talk after talk. So, and coming to and making uh, the conclusion that there's nothing that we can think of can be a fixed solid self. Anatta, not self. And finally, the third characteristic is that we're profoundly provisory. In every moment between birth and death, we are being changed. And again, not only us, but everything we know of, everything that all human collective knowledge is, from galaxies to atoms to subatomic particles, 
Everything is provisional. Everything is in constant flux. So the Pali name for this characteristic is anicca, which is translated as impermanence. And perhaps that's um, that's actually the, the Pali English translation is perhaps the most precise. I'm not a Pali scholar, but that's what my understanding is. So just that those three characteristics it's a pretty gloomy picture if you look at it in a certain way you know here we are this is human life according to the buddhist way of viewing human life so where's the wiggle room i mean what's the point of acting what i mean what can we do so there are many paradoxes that we necessarily live with as human beings and one of the oddest yet most helpful is that we when we still ourselves when we just sit down as we've done 30 minutes ago and look deeply at difficult and problematic situations in life we find that they are empty in a way and part of that emptiness that they don't have any real solidity either and part of that is that they're also transitory Um, so this is where the Buddha got practical with us and said these are many many of the great teachings um, the Satipatthana Sutta which this tradition is very strongly based on um, Um, the foundations of awareness which is that's what we've just been practicing this evening being aware of being embodied and our breath through our breathing there are many other kinds of embodiment awareness and there are many practices but just this practice of simple breathing is an awareness of breathing is extraordinarily profound and when we really get in touch in a um in a consistently applied way with this kind of stillness with this kind of awareness uh, we find that we can face our fears uh, for example and that they dissolve in a certain sense that we become free of obsessions and and fears and shames and um, all that we carry with us as a necessary part of being human so what the Buddha pointed to actually what he he directed us to see for ourselves should we choose to which we're all doing tonight is that this entry point this kind of awareness is a human birthright that everyone has it who is born human so it's also part of being human as well as these three characteristics and he called it sati or mindfulness mindfulness is a non-judgmental and flowing kind of awareness so it doesn't get stuck on anything often like in thinking think well I'm aware of this and that's a kind of thinking but thinking often gets caught in the narrative and fixes on things which is very helpful and useful uh, for very many aspects of being human and so we definitely need to keep that 
that part going. And certainly mindful awareness doesn't uh, take away any of that. Um, but the mindful awareness is, is this awareness that sees everything that arises in a non-judgmental way and flows on to the next thing. Because at any moment we have so many sense doors, six sense doors, and, and there are so many impressions from within us and from outside that come to us. It's really, um, it's really amazing. We can just keep it all together. Mindfulness allows us to, to go from any one of those or to keep on one particular sensation, should we choose to. So this is always with us, mindfulness. It's not that it goes away, but we have a habit of not tuning into it. And in fact, it takes some, it takes some cultivation and some maturity to tune into it. Although children can, in a certain sense, um, that seems also part of being human, that, we, that we, we have to go through the process of being born and growing up and being and learning things and uh, spending our energy in that way that kids do. Um, And of course there's a lot of variation among individuals, but when we come to a kind of awareness where we are called, as we are all here tonight, called by something within us or without us, some event in our lives perhaps, to look more deeply at what it is to be alive and that's when we begin to really cultivate mindfulness in a more practical and systematic way in other words intention so this tuning in requires an intention and it also at the same time as I alluded to it requires a questioning attitude well what is this life what it's not just as as Rumi said um, there's more to life than money fame and bites of roasted meat you know we kind of know this that um, that there's there are other things going on Um, and how but how do we how do we get close to those things And this questioning attitude is also a very deep part of uh, our human nature, completely natural to us, and it's called in simple terms, curiosity. We all have it as human beings. Children have it. Um, You know, sometimes maybe we think to excess. Um, But I think this is some of my speculations that we're hardwired for curiosity And we're also, it seems, hardwired to scare ourselves, to make nightmares in the daylight. And it's interesting, these these kind of speculations that that one has, people or other people are starting to have these speculations and do research on them, and that's part of what will be talked about um, on the program on Saturday. Um, Scientists are beginning to look into this, beginning to go on insight meditation retreats even. So we have this deep brain that's buried in our skulls or that's in our skulls and the limbic brain which comprises, you may have heard of the amygdala and the part that just 
the so-called reptile brain. That all makes up the reptile brain. It's, it's very non-discriminating. In the reptile brain, movement is threat. And this is where, because we can see evolutionarily, this is, makes sense. So, and we still have that part. And um, that's the way we are, so that's fine. Uh, because of this, because of the way that we're set up, our perceptual apparatus is also configured in a certain way. So, for example, we see chairs and think they're solid because at the or- ordinary level of eye perception, they are solid, but, but they look that way. But actually, of course, they're made up of molecules that are even moving slightly. It's just that we can't perceive those because of the way our eyes are set up. Or in um, um, a well-known Buddhist analogy, we see we see a snake in the road, which is really a rope. Or we walk into our garage and see the mop shadow, and we think it's a burglar. So, in a way, we're programmed for misperception. But when we can bring the lens of meditative awareness, of mindful awareness, and we each do this in our own unique way, in our own unique constellation of all of our experiences and our own mind-body, we can see more clearly and we can see into these questions of what life is, what we are. The lens of mindfulness allows us to look more carefully, attentively, and openly at our experiences, our inner life, as well as our life in the world, our engaged life in the world. And to even describe this looking and kind of sense of freedom and openness is almost paradoxical, too, because we see more subtleties and finer textures to life and awareness and at the same time, a broader and more expansive field is, is, uh, is apparent to us. So the question is how to access and encourage this mindful awareness. And Buddhism has a long tried and tested method, and that's a period of time away from a retreat from the distractions of daily life to allow ourselves to bring this powerful lens out of its case. So we can, we can, it's, it's in here. We just have to open its case up so that we can look through it. Um, And I have no real way of knowing what life was like, for example, at the Buddha's time. But it certainly seems that it was much simpler than it is now, in a way. People, um, there just were less distractions, although maybe that's not true. Maybe there were distractions of a different nature then. Uh, I'm not sure, but certainly it feels like we live in an historical time where there are lots of distractions. We can distract ourselves endlessly, and just even being alive and staying alive in a... um, in a kind of responsible way, we have to, we have to, you know, do a lot of things that take us away from the kind of inquiry that being quiet allows us. So um, retreat away from distractions of daily life. Um, 
Well, a going away treat is very helpful, most helpful, I would say, and I always encourage people to to try that out because that's really the Buddha's invitation requires some dedication of time. However, it, it doesn't really require a retreat setting to experience this this sense of wholeness and to get in touch with mindful awareness practice. But some form of application is necessary. So a daily meditation practice is a form of retreat and it's a most valuable one too. And um, the access can be quite simple. For some meditation traditions, simply sitting down with the attention to be aware is enough. So you don't even have to focus on the breath. But most people find it easier to, um, to access mindfulness through a kind of a focus. And the breath is a wonderful one because it's very with us at all times. And it's also very profound. It, it is what sustains us. Just getting in touch with our natural rhythms that sustain us through our whole lives of our whole complicated, busy, wonderful um, lives that we lead. So sitting down we must do. And that's just another condition in this world that we inhabit. But yet, in another kind of paradox, just this sitting down and stilling, that's what gives rise to the wiggle room. Meditative awareness allows us to see the spaciousness that exists between the conditions of our lives. It allows us to see where the freedom is. We begin and we continue and then we start to see that we don't have to you know, hang on to this so much or push that away so hard. We don't have to hang on to suffering or pain, not to the fact that we're not in control. We don't have to hang on to our illusory selves nor to our yearning for permanence. And questioning, and questing is another necessary condition of the meditative path. When we bring our natural curiosity to the situation, other possible ways of being in a situation can occur to us. It's not only in the seeing the situation and our reactions to it, but in our active participation, our active interest in, the, in seeing the myriad possibilities. That all arises for us, or it can. If we keep persisting with our intention and keep our curiosity open, That's engagement, that's life and vitality and not just reactivity. So in a way we we have to establish the habit of, of awareness, the habit of sitting and stilling. And habit can be liberative as well as confining. So, so we are creatures of habit. So it's really wonderful to have some some good habits, some pleasant habits that um, that allow us to see the space and freedom that's possible for us. The Buddha called his way the middle way and it can be described as this process. Fulfilling our humanness through clearly seeing the situation 
and creatively engaging with it. And that's a quote from Stephen Batchelor, who's a well-known Buddhist scholar and teacher who practices in three traditions. He, he's so taken with Buddhism that he uh, practices in the Tibetan, the, the Zen, and, and the Theravada Vipassana tradition. He comes to um, teach occasionally here as well. So this phrase of his points to the dynamic qualities of the middle way. The Buddha formulated this way profoundly and simply in the four ennobling truths. But these truths aren't engraved on tablets of stone or laws handed down, but they're more like path pointers that we each must follow in our own ways, in our own lives. It's interesting to me because I like language and words that Pali and Sanskrit for that matter don't have capitals. So, so concepts don't get reified at least by capital letters. So um, the four in English called noble often, but, um, but I liked uh, that phrase ennobling. Um, so these paths that we follow are, aren't to arrive anywhere, but to see again and again how, what possibilities are open to us in every moment and how we create our own paths. And as we do, we can see how we act with compassion in accord with this ancient law of interrelationship. We realize as the Dhammapada, one of the earliest um, texts of Buddhism, puts it, in this world, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the truth, small t, ancient and inexhaustible. At certain points through our creative awareness and questing, we realize experientially, we actually have the experience that we, just as we are, are Buddhas. That there's not a Buddha kind of godlike figure out there. Another way to say that, that's used in the Zen and Mahayana tradition, is that we realize our Buddha nature. And once again, not that there's a hidden Buddha mind in us that's just kind of waiting to get out through practice, or not that we, don't, that we fall into some blissful states or uh, blessed states, although that may happen in certain, uh, through certain concentration practices in Theravada, those are called the jhana states. But all those experiences are also conditioned. They're ephemeral and they change depending on conditions. So what we realize is that as human beings, we share with the Buddha, who was another human being, the equipment and potential to stop these contractions of our heart and mind, just to... um, to see how we are whole. Um, Just as the Buddha did. He just called the Buddha, of course, you probably know, means awake. He said, "I I am simply awake when people asked him what he was. He was aware of, alive, awake to, 
these deep possibilities that we have as humans. So he began his seeking through these four signs, sickness, old age, death, and then a renunciant who looked very peaceful to him. So someone practicing retreats, who removed, uh, that person removed himself from the world. And the Buddha saw that person and saw something in that person, saw a difference, a different look about that person. So these are essential human questions and dilemmas in all cultures at all times. Birth, aging, illness, death. And you know, probably also know that uh, old joke about the leading cause of death is birth. That's uh, very much in the Buddhist way of looking at things. Um, This is how we are as human beings. We just come here without any way of knowing how we got here, really. Each of us, I mean, we have, of course, we know a certain level, but it's this miracle that we're here and this miracle that we won't be here. We don't really know how that happens until we begin to look deeply. And perhaps then what we know is that it doesn't matter so much knowing how. It matters how we live here while we're here. So in all these conjunctions of awareness and quest and compassion, we find ourselves alive and we find a kind of freedom there. We're free to actualize our interrelationship with others, to share our joy and wisdom, to respond to the suffering we see. And we find that we can know transformation. We can know surprise, happiness, peace, many things. Suzuki Roshi commented on a 1,200-year-old 44-line poem uh, from the Chinese Zen tradition. And this poem is called The Harmony of Difference and Equality. And Suzuki Roshi's comment was, the uh, capacity of the human mind has three aspects, potentiality, interrelationship, and appropriateness. And where we find our freedom is in as all these three aspects operate simultaneously. Through awareness, questioning, and then action, potentiality unfolds. We all have this capacity, this Buddha nature in its potential form, and the possibility of realizing our most complete nature. We can aspire to that, intend to that, do the best we can to that. Every aspect of the world that we know through our senses can help us realize this nature. And this potential is activated through interrelationship, which we also feel as compassion and love. We could not exist without one another, and that's a literal truth. Um, And we begin to see this unfold as we go more deeply into these questions and allow our awareness to stay open, we feel compassion and love. Suzuki Roshi then said, love has two sides, to give joy and to lessen suffering. 
appropriateness then is a form of wisdom knowing when to share joy and when to respond to suffering questioning what is this what is this happening in this moment what is this anger I feel when someone cuts me off at the freeway what is uh, this joy I feel when I hear the birds singing in the morning who am I questions that we ask ourselves of great depth so questioning attuning to awareness through stillness allows us to live the full potential of our lives and all this is available to us so I often end um, the talks I give with poetry and as I was reflecting on this talk this afternoon the poem that came to my mind uh, is one of mine so I'll read you one of my poems tonight it's called The Habit of Time What tense calls us night after summer night through the roses and jasmine spending themselves in the cool copper air retina stem cerebrum these ten tendencies shimmer and wink out habits of holding our home is the center of the bees winged flame it opens the rose the hip the coming dark well thank you for listening so now we have time it's very helpful to me and to all of us to hear what you have to offer and say about awareness and questioning or or anything else that that you need to say so it was interesting um, as I was coming here today I was at a store and I didn't realize it was 7.15 so I thought oh my gosh I'm going to be late I rushed here found parking and I did not know how to quiet myself before meditation I don't know what it was but um, something happened tonight and I, I, I don't know if it's like the collective meditation as opposed to me being alone at home but um, I just suddenly formed a thought in my mind my profession frequently uh, calls me to diagnose other people and to know what their illness is and lately I've realized that I don't think I ask enough questions and when I'm paying attention to my two-year-old and to my mom who I thought I knew for years judgment does not allow me to ask questions and when I start to ask questions I start to know not only them but me thank you of late I've had that experience where you're focusing and you notice and you question and you come up with an answer that is like revealing is recently I've had a few instances where I've been extremely irritated 
and stopping to see what's going on and observing how I feel and what I'm experiencing. And especially in the instances where I'm irritated at somebody and actually having that little blame thing going on in my head. And what I experience is that I'm not seeing outside myself. It's my own personal hamster wheel that I am on. I am winding myself up. And because I've done it a few times recently where I've, I've caught myself being irritated at this person because of blah, 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 and it has zipped to do with this person other than, you know, they were the, the, the immediate stimulus to me entering my hamster wheel and cranking it up. And I'm not so sure. In fact, I know that I didn't, I wasn't as intimate with my own personal wheel as I am now through the meditation. And so the, the inquiring thing is amazing. Thank you. That's um, intimacy. That's a very great gift that, um, that, medit- that awareness mindfulness practice allows us to become intimate with ourselves and to also... Um, what flows from that, in my experience, is compassion because one becomes compassionate with oneself. So seeing your own hamster wheel, you put that in a, you know, in a funny way, but um, you, I, I heard you forgiving yourself by calling it a hamster wheel. There's forgiveness. But we can see ourselves and just... We all are part of being human is having weaknesses and blindnesses and hamster wheels too. That's, and, and yet that's the space of freedom that mindful awareness allows us to see. There just doesn't be a way to seem to be a way to get around the still part. <laughs> I mean, you can be mindful, definitely, in, in motion. And that, that does come with practice. But stilling is valuable. I think it's especially valuable for us because I know that the Buddha didn't live in a time where he could drive 80 miles an hour on 280. You know? So, <laughs> so um, we are really, really fast. And, and many people who go to Asia to practice... and and I have been there too, are just, you know, struck by how much slower it is even in Thailand today or, or, you know, other places than it is, or even in India. They're gearing up, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, um, so that stilling is, is important. Thank you very much. Maureen's comment um, brought to mind um, Thanksgiving for me. It was the first of the occasions to spend uh, days with the family of uh, origin. And um, I spent three days with um, my dad, my sister, and her family. And I had a number of occasions where the um, hamster wheels were going. And um, there was some chaos and family drama going on. And um, in the moment, I, I was thought I was experiencing external anger towards them in the situation. 
And it's amazing for me that how I can be mindful for the majority of my life and it's amazing how I get into this particular situation and my family I, it seems like I walk through the door and the mindfulness <laughs> just seems to stay in the car um, and I was I left it took me about two days to detox from that and I realized I had spent three days doing in lieu of being and that I hadn't even really been there. I wasn't at Thanksgiving. I was trying to go around putting out fires and dealing with my hamster wheels. And I realized that the uh, anger was not at these people. It was at with myself and allowing myself because I'm, I'm so engaged with their stuff that was going on. Um, and I hope to really hold on to that awareness for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, the, the awareness flows. The awareness is always there, if, if, if you can remember that. It flows through. Even It's with you even when it's in the car. But I uh, relate to these. You know, there are very difficult times in our lives and difficult people, difficult situations. And then it's even... Even if afterwards <laughs> we are feel that little awareness that we knew, which you've talked about and Marine has, and, and you had too as well, uh, judging. It's, uh, it's, it's a great gift. I think I'd just like to ask people, um, or maybe what you do when you find... You know, you mentioned something about we're all Buddhas. You know, we all, by nature, are divine. When you get to that point when you're judging, whether it's someone else or yourself, and you start to, you know, you're aware of it, so you start to feel yourself go down a certain destructive path. Um, I'm wondering if there is just something, maybe I just discovered that, I can just say, Buddha, you know, or I mean, you can just say something to automatically remind yourself that forgiveness and love, because every moment is with mindfulness, right? Every moment is a new moment. You can always step into a new moment, so there's always a chance to be born again. Yes, th- there are practices. Thank you for that question. I would um, like to say one clarification first. For um, in Buddhist, um, in Buddhist understanding, at least the Buddhist traditions that that, that I have experience with, which is um, Mahayana, Zen, and Theravada, we, we aren't divine. We are human. You know, so, so d- d- divine um, has another aspect to it. And so, I just want to put that out there. That's that's my understanding. And I and I'm sure that Buddhism is a very, very large <laughs> tent, and so I'm sure that people could could have differences on that, different views on that. The, the practices of, of which are generally in, in the U.S. called metta or in, in Western uh, are specifically addressed that, and there is a practice of forgiving. And so when you find yourself... Um, um, in that situation to have some sort of phrase that says uh, and it might be a quick one that says just as I am or just as he is or just as she is and so the, the, the longer kind of version is the, of, of that that 
that I sometimes use is um, to myself or to this other person I offer forgiveness uh, for my mistakes and lapses my weaknesses and blindnesses just as I am and so or to another person I mean but usually as people have pointed out it's it's all about you so it's most helpful to offer it to yourself but sometimes it's not and we do need to be aware that that people can be mean people can be nasty even so you know we, we have to keep that in mind that we have to be wise about that too and if we're being um, we have to try to find the best wise and compassionate response we can to people that are that are actually you know not being that are not being wise and compassionate but but so often much of our of our relation to the to the outer world it is about it comes from the the stem the root causes are what i mentioned briefly in the characteristics that we we have this anxiety about knowing that you know we are not <laughs> you know we are in these bodies which are individual and seem very solid but we know that it's not we can't really control it all including other people and that's that those are our most strong relations as a rule with other human beings so thank you for asking that may we forgive ourselves and others for our mistakes and lapses our weaknesses and blindness may we accept ourselves and others just as we are in this moment.